Welcome to the third episode of Propensity Season 1. I'd just like to thank everyone who has listened, shared and given their support so far. It's much appreciated. Come follow me at PropensityPod on Instagram and TikTok to see upcoming episode previews and be the first to see exclusive behind-the-scenes news. Starting a podcast is tough and it's not for the faint-hearted. Being an independent podcaster means doing it all yourself and playing every part. And you often don't see the benefits for a very long time. It can sometimes feel like you're reaching into the void and don't quite know if anyone is reaching back to take your hand. We pour ourselves into creative passion projects without knowing how they will be received or if other people will enjoy them. This is the nature of the beast. It's just a part of the deal. Your feedback and support has really meant a lot to me, so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you. The story I'm going to tell you about today covers an historical crime case that begins in 19th century France and spans the course of more than three decades. So I thought it would be fitting to tell you about another up-and-coming Canadian true crime podcast I've been listening to called Rooted in Crime that covers cases from the same time period. Rooted in Crime tells historical true crime stories through the lens of genealogy and covers cases dating before 1970. If you like well-told, well-researched crime stories from history and compassionate hosts who put the victim first and foremost, then check out Rooted in Crime. I've put a link in the show description if you'd like to check out Lauren and Nima's show after this episode. After that brief preamble, let's get into the story. This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It's 1901, France. An anonymous letter alerts authorities to a peculiar case, an accusation that a prominent wealthy family have imprisoned their only daughter in a dingy attic for decades. Police raid the townhouse only to find an emaciated figure crouching in the darkness on a filthy straw mattress. A dead father, an evil mother, an indifferent brother, an entire town afraid to question the most powerful family in the region, a lost love, and finally a forgotten daughter left to die a slow, agonizing and solitary death as she starved in a tiny, darkened room. This is what we've been told, but it may not all be entirely true. This is the story of Blanche Monnier. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast.
On Thursday the 23rd of May, 1901, the residents of Java, Indonesia awoke to the violent eruption of the Mount Calliard volcano. The crater at its peak contained a deep lake. Its basin carved into the hollowed mountaintop over the course of millions of years and numerous eruptions. When the volcano erupted in a ferocious explosion, it spewed a mixture of boiling hot water and lava, causing dangerous mudslides and eviscerating everything in its path. Hundreds of people died. Villages, people, wildlife and dense tropical jungle were all wiped out in minutes. Ash was recorded as falling as far away as Jakarta and Sarang, more than 750 kilometres away on the westernmost tip of the island. Further afield that same day, France was preparing to announce the opening of the French sedan in modern-day Mali to European traffic. Sitting in his office, Monsieur Léon Boulot, Attorney General of Paris, was alerted to a meticulously handwritten letter addressed to him. This letter made a seemingly incredulous claim about a prestigious family of noble origins. It wasn't signed, and there was no way to trace the sender. It read, Monsieur Attorney General, I have the honour to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence. I speak of a spinster who was locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half-starved and living on a putrid litter for the past 25 years. In a word, in her own filth. Police were dispatched at once to the provincial town of Poitiers, 430 kilometres from Paris. It was 5pm before Commissioner Boucheton, a senior police officer with the regional police force, along with three agents, arrived at the door of the Monnier residence. A member of the house staff opened the door and informed them that Madame Monnier was resting. They told the police that they would have to confer with her son Marcel, who lived in the property on the opposite side of the street. Upon entering the large townhouse, Commissioner Boucheton and his men conducted a room-by-room search. They searched for any sign that something was amiss. But every room they entered yielded the same result. Nothing was out of place and there was nothing suspicious to be found. And if the commissioner and his men had taken the Moniers at their word and the situation at face value, they would have turned and walked away there and then never uncovering the horrifying secrets held within the Monnier home. Instead, they climbed each floor and moved through the building, checking room by room. They checked bedrooms and studies and drawing rooms until they arrived at a heavy door leading to an attic at the top floor of the house. The door was chained and padlocked shut. We don't know whether the mistress of the house, Madame Louise Monnier, was present at this stage or if Marcel or a servant were the ones to finally unlock the door. Several reports indicate that the police were met with resistance from the family during the entire search and subsequent investigation. 
The Moniers enjoyed a privilege and power afforded by their station in life that most French citizens at the time could scarcely dream of. They were unaccustomed to being commanded to do anything by those of a lower class or of lesser means, which pretty much included everyone. When threatened with returning with the judge, the family finally acquiesced and allowed the police officers to enter the tiny room. The putrid stench hit them first. It clung heavy in the air and invaded their lungs. With every breath, they could taste the stale and rancid air as it entered their throats. They used what they could to cover their mouths and noses. The room was dark, dank and unventilated. There was a small window, but it didn't open easily. The shutters wouldn't budge. When they did manage to pry it open, some light from the outside world filtered through, giving the men a clearer view of the scene. An emaciated figure at one with the darkness. Wide-eyed, skeletal, wild, crouched on a filthy straw mattress. Cockroaches and rats scurried across the squalid floor, competing for the discarded scraps of food. An unnamed witness, most likely Bouchaton or one of his agents, wrote the following account. We immediately gave the order to open the casement window. This was done with great difficulty, for the old dark-coloured curtains fell down in a heavy shower of dust. To open the shutters, it was necessary to remove them from their right hinges. As soon as light entered the room, we noticed, in the back, lying on a bed, her head and body covered by a repulsively filthy blanket, a woman identified as Mademoiselle Blanche Monnier. The witness continued, The unfortunate woman was lying completely naked on a rotten straw mattress. All around her was formed a sort of crust made from excrement, fragments of meat, vegetables, fish and rotten bread. We also saw oyster shells and bugs running across Mademoiselle Monnier's bed. The air was so unbreathable. The odour given off by the room was so rank that it was impossible for us to stay any longer to proceed with our investigation. Blanche was severely malnourished, covered in sores and lesions, and unable to speak coherently. Live maggots burrowed into the open sores on her naked body. She was immediately transported to the nearest hospital by ambulance to receive medical treatment. While doctors were able to stabilise her condition, her mental and physical health would never fully recover. Blanche Monnier was born on the 1st of March 1849 to Charles-Emile and Louise Monnier, a wealthy French aristocratic family and prominent Catholics. She had an older brother Marcel born the previous year. Her father, Charles Emile, an academic, was Dean of Arts at University of Poitiers and lectured in rhetoric, while her mother Louise was a highly visible socialite, well known in upper class social circles. Both were highly respected in their community, 
but at the time, this was more a consequence of their position in French society rather than a reflection of their character, good or bad. Blanche was raised with the expectation that she would marry a suitor commensurate with her position. How she felt about this was irrelevant. A match would be sought and she would do her duty and honour the wishes of her family. Blanche was described as being extremely beautiful and it's thought that she would have had an ample supply of suitors courting her parents for her hand in marriage. In 1874, Marcel, a civil servant, married a Spanish woman of noble birth. The two eventually had a child, Marie Dolores, and while they moved from city to city for Marcel's job, they maintained a residence owned by his mother on the opposite side of the street to the established Monnier townhouse. They returned to Poitiers to live there full-time in 1891. Blanche's mother Louise was the daughter of a successful stockbroker. She married Charles Emile when she was just 22. Multiple accounts paint Louise as a difficult and domineering woman, who was miserly, highly strung, and had issues around personal hygiene. A maid who worked in the Monnier household testified that Madame Monnier wore the same filthy dress each day and that when her children were young, she heavily monitored and restricted the food they were allowed to eat. Psychologists now would probably diagnose Madame Monnier with a series of mental illnesses. But at the time, she was left to run her household as she saw fit, with absolutely no external intervention. She was able to hide behind the mask of respectability. Her privilege, wealth and position in society bought her freedom and a level of independence that was very unusual for a woman of her time. The story that we have been told, and the one that is widely accepted, is that Blanche's father Charles had died, and her mother needed her to marry well to secure the fortunes of the Monnier family. In 1876, Blanche fell in love with a Protestant lawyer who was much older than her and lived in the same town. Her mother forbade her to marry what she called a penniless lawyer. Blanche was locked away in the attic as punishment until she changed her mind and agreed to marry a man of her mother's choosing. She never did. A 2021 Irish Mirror article by Emma Grit and David Kent suggests rather sensationally, that Blanche was, quote, sex-shamed, unquote, by her family. They tell us that, quote, her mother was a widow, so she was relying on her beautiful daughter to marry into wealth to keep the family living to the high standard they were used to, and that an older man, and certainly not one who was broke, was not part of her mother's plan, end quote. Instead, Blanche festered alone in the attic. A solitary existence with only the memory of the man she loved to sustain her. It's said that the unnamed lawyer that she wished to marry died unexpectedly in 1885, never knowing Blanche's fate. Neighbours and townspeople were told a variety of stories to explain away Blanche's sudden absence. 
They were told that she moved away, that she left the country, had moved to Scotland, that she was staying with family. Some reports even claim that her family had told people she had died and publicly mourned her loss. Sometimes neighbours heard unholy screams coming from the Monnier home. These were explained away and the origins of the sounds were never investigated. Eventually, her presence was no longer missed. No one questioned where the Monnier's only daughter might be. No one looked for her. She became a figment of the past. A ghost. No one missed her. This is what we've been told. It makes for a good story. The dead father, the evil mother, the indifferent brother. The townspeople afraid to question the most powerful family in the region. The lost love. And finally, the forgotten daughter left to die a slow, agonising and solitary death over decades as she starved in a tiny darkened room. This is a story that I fully believed and set out to tell in this episode. But it may not be entirely true. Now I'm going to look at an alternative telling. While researching this story, I came across some very interesting sources that dispute the established narrative on Blanche's life. As a child, Blanche is said to have had a happy childhood. Yet as she grew older, she clashed more and more with her mother. She began to study religion and even considered becoming a nun. She began to spend more and more time alone in her room and disclosed to those closest to her several mystical experiences. She also began to restrict her food intake, perhaps under the guise of religious fasting. France is, and certainly was then, a predominantly Catholic country. The fact that Blanche gravitated towards religion to explain her visions is understandable, as this was the prism through which she and her peers would have viewed life and how she made sense of the world. She's said to have had a nervous disposition. In the 21st century, she'd probably be diagnosed with an eating disorder and possibly deemed mentally ill. In 1872, when she was 23, Blanche became ill with a fever, and while her body recovered, it's said that her mind never did. It's reported that she refused to wear clothes in the house and was seen, on more than one occasion, standing naked at the window for all of the town to see. This would have caused great shame and humiliation to her family. And indeed, the outward ideal of respectability that they strived so hard to project to the world. Blanche was locked in her parents' attic in 1876 at the age of 27. But her father Charles Emile was still alive then and didn't die until six years later in 1882. It's very possible that Charles was fully aware of and approved of Blanche's confinement. Residents of Poitiers and the French society that the Moniers had been embraced by assumed that Blanche had moved away or died and eventually stopped asking about her. This part is true. Reports vary, but it's suggested that Blanche struggled with an eating disorder and acute mental health issues throughout her adolescent and teenage years. 
the mystical experiences she had were said to be religious visions. How much of her isolation was self-inflicted is unknown. Was she intentionally locked in the attic from 1876 or could she leave? Did she have access to the rest of the house? Was this access gradually restricted as her condition worsened? Was her confinement to the attic immediate and final? We'll likely never have definitive answers to these questions, as they died with the Monnier family. Was Blanche's deliberate concealment an attempt to avoid the public embarrassment of a mentally ill family member and the reputational damage it could inflict on the Monnier name? Could it have begun as a period of self-isolation and gradually developed into confinement as her mental and physical state deteriorated? The truth is, we just don't know. We don't even know if there was ever an engagement or a love match relationship, or if this was invented by the press or others at the time to further embellish an already unbelievable story. The few details we have about her mysterious suitor point to an individual who may well have existed. We know that her potential suitor lived in the town of Poitiers and that he was an older man or at least older than Blanche at the time of her confinement. He was a lawyer by occupation and Protestant. But let's remember Blanche's brother Marcel was also a lawyer, so it was hardly the occupation of a poor and near destitute peasant. The lawyer was referred to as being penniless, although this may just have meant that he was not wealthy in comparison to an aristocratic family like the Moniers. Finally, we have the detail that he died unexpectedly in 1885. These all suggest that he may have been a real person and that he and Blanche may indeed have planned to marry or at the very least had some kind of friendship or relationship. The Monnier matriarch was also not near destitute, as some have suggested or in need of the fortune that a strong marriage match would provide, should her daughter marry a wealthy suitor. If the press or a well-meaning local were to fabricate this story, then surely they would have added additional detail and made a fantastical story even more elaborate. Perhaps they could have added that he searched everywhere for Blanche, followed Leeds and travelled to Scotland to find her. Maybe he refused to marry anyone who wasn't Blanche. Perhaps it was he who suspected the true nature of the Monnier family secret. And it was he who penned the anonymous letter only to die suddenly, perhaps of a broken heart, just days before his true love was finally discovered and freed. This would make for a very good story, even if none of it were actually true. Let's take a moment to talk about Blanche's care. It's just not possible to stay alive for 25 years in a tiny room without outside intervention. While she was extremely underweight when discovered, there were remnants of food strewn around the attic, suggesting that someone was providing some basic care, even if it ultimately fell short of what Blanche both required and deserved.
There is ample evidence, including court testimony and witness statements, that Blanche's mother Louise did provide some care to her daughter during her forced confinement. Two doctors were tasked with Blanche's care over the years. The first, Dr. Guarino, was the Monnier family doctor. He's thought to have diagnosed Blanche with some form of mental illness soon after her bout of fever in 1872. Remember, this happened when she was just 23 years old. Dr. Guarino died in 1882, the same year as Charles Emile. After his death, another physician became her doctor. In a court statement, this new doctor claimed that he had last examined Blanche in 1896. By 1897, Louise had engaged the services of a new doctor as her personal physician. This doctor was called Dr. Chiron. In his testimony, Dr. Chiron stated that he did not examine or provide medical care for Blanche simply because he did not even know that she existed. At some point between 1872, when Blanche first became unwell, and 1876, when her incarceration began, the Monniers hired a nurse, Marie Fazzi, to care for Blanche. The court records refer to Marie as being a nurse, although she may not have been a nurse as we now understand the role. She may instead have been a carer, with some basic medical knowledge, who could meet Blanche's most basic needs. It was reported that Marie was a devoted companion to Blanche for at least 20 years. She attended to her every need and even slept in the same room as her. She was also the only person who could calm Blanche down when she had one of her episodes. Nowhere do we hear what one of these episodes actually looked like. An emotional outburst, banging and breaking furniture, attempting to escape. These are all natural responses to being confined against your will. They could also be interpreted as the behaviour of someone who is mentally ill. It all depends on who is controlling the narrative. Marie died in 1896. This was five full years before Blanche was discovered alone in the dingy attic of the Monnier residence. It's safe to assume that in the period between Marie's death and Blanche's eventual discovery, her condition worsened. This decline was so extreme that when she was found naked, neglected and skeletal, Blanche weighed just 24 kilos or 53 pounds. When he returned to Poitiers in 1891, Marcel reportedly visited his sister on an almost daily basis. He would sit with her in the tiny attic room reading aloud to her from magazines and newspapers. In the more than 100 years since it was publicised, this case has been the subject of much rumour and speculation. We don't even know what Blanche looked like prior to her ordeal. There are no surviving photographs of her. There are two main photographs often purported to be of Blanche as a young woman, but these are in fact two separate people. The first image is of the American actress Maude Feely, who herself was stunningly beautiful. 
The second photograph is of an unknown but equally beautiful woman, believed to have been taken in 1914. This was 13 years after Blanche was found and rescued from the attic, and a full year after her death. You may be wondering why it seems that I'm focusing on beauty. Believe me, this is not a personal value of mine. But I mention it in reference to how the media portray victims in situations like this. Beauty becomes a news value. The more beautiful a victim, the more worthy they are deemed to be by the media. This is then reflected in coverage of the case. When reporting on crime, the media have an unfortunate history of categorising the victims, particularly women, as being either good victims or bad victims, i.e. those who are truly blameless and those who, according to coverage, framing and even omission of facts and circumstances, partly deserve their fate. Sometimes this is overt and blatant, as we saw with the media coverage and the attitude of the police to victims of English serial killer Peter Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe was dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper by the media. You may or may not be familiar with Peter Sutcliffe. For those who haven't heard of him, I'm going to give a very brief introduction. Sutcliffe was convicted of murdering 13 women. He was also convicted of attempting to murder another seven, some of whom were sex workers. The prevailing attitude of the time was to victim blame. In fact, it was the default position. There was little media coverage of the first few women he killed, other than to label them prostitutes, even though only some of his victims were actually confirmed to be sex workers. When he murdered 14-year-old Tracy Brown in August 1975, the media coverage shifted. Suddenly, this unknown killer was targeting, in the words of the police, quote, innocent young girls, end quote. Now everyone was in danger. Instead of increasing patrols and allocating more resources to the task force working on the case, police instead chose to place the blame on women. They suggested that members of the public were wholly responsible for their own safety, rather than being protected by the police. We've seen similar attitudes play out again and again when it comes to reporting on victims of violent and sexual crimes. In addition to the victim profile, for example runaways, sex workers, people of colour, immigrants and so on, those categorised as living, quote, high-risk lifestyles, unquote, are more at risk of coming into contact with someone who may become their attacker. The attractiveness of the victim also plays into the media narrative. Another example of this is the murder of Jill Marr. Jill was a 29-year-old Irish woman living in Melbourne, Australia. In September 2012, Jill had gone for after-work drinks with colleagues from ABC Melbourne. She was walking the short distance to the home she shared with her husband, Tom. 
She had just gotten off the phone with her husband when she was accosted by Adrian Ernest Bailey, who proceeded to sexually assault and murder her before burying her in a shallow grave. The public outrage was intense, and her case received a high level of media coverage. It just struck me at the time that Jill was being universally recognised as being a good victim. Young, beautiful, innocent, and wholly undeserving of what happened to her. This is, of course, true in Jill's case, but it's also true in every case where someone dies violently or survives an unimaginable situation. Every victim matters. Every victim has someone who either loves them or did love them. They all deserve to be mourned. Categorizing victims as being worthy or unworthy of our compassion is a way of devaluing those victims and survivors. In this case, it suits the narrative to suggest that Blanche was incredibly beautiful, with her whole life ahead of her, before she was cruelly locked away in the attic. She may well have been beautiful. She may have been the most beautiful creature that anyone in Poitiers had ever set eyes on. But even if she wasn't, her story is still worth telling. Even if she was plain or average looking, even if she suffered from a range of mental illnesses, she did not deserve to be locked away for 25 years. Denied medical treatment and have her basic needs so severely neglected that she became the living skeleton of Poitiers, as the newspapers at the time dubbed her. After her rescue, Blanche was examined by a slew of doctors and medical professionals. She was cleaned, her wounds dressed, and received the medical care that she had been lacking. She was diagnosed with a range of conditions including anorexia hysteria, schizophrenia, exhibitionism and coprophilia. Hysteria was a catch-all medical term applied primarily to women, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. It pathologized a range of ordinary behaviours as symptoms of diseases that needed to be cured. Julia Jablonowski discusses this in relation to anorexia nervosa or anorexia hysteria as it was referred to at the time. She tells us that in the mid-19th century, two men were separately researching and identifying this condition. In France, the Parisian neuropsychiatrist Eugene Charles Lesseguet coined the term anorexia hysteria for this condition while London-based physician Sir William Gull proposed the name anorexia nervosa. Gull described the condition as follows. Quote, The want of appetite is, I believe, due to a morbid mental state. I have not observed in these cases any gastric disorder to which the want of appetite could be referred. We might call the state hysterical without committing ourselves to the etymological value of the word, or maintaining that the subjects of it have the common symptoms of hysteria. I prefer, however, the more general term nervosa 
since the disease occurs in males as well as females and is probably rather central than peripheral, end quote. Coprophilia refers to the sexual arousal and pleasure from faeces. It was alleged that Marcel was also a coprophiliac, and this was given by some quarters as the reason for his near-daily visits to his sister's attic room, rather than providing companionship to his mentally ill sibling. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that Marcel was interested in or partook in this practice. It was likely a rumour that further sensationalised an already remarkable story. The exhibitionism is self-explanatory and likely began in Blanche's early years when she would press her naked body against the windowpane for all of her neighbours to see. The Mayo Clinic defines schizophrenia as being a serious mental disorder in which people interpret reality abnormally. They list symptoms as manifesting in, quote, some combination of hallucinations, delusions, and extremely disordered thinking and behaviour, end quote. This may explain some of the reports about Blanche's earlier behaviours such as mystical or religious visions, which, with this diagnosis, could have been categorised as hallucinations. Upon Blanche's discovery and rescue, there was uproar in the town of Poitiers and, indeed, in all of France. The case became international news. The press labelled her the living skeleton of Poitiers, It was a media sensation. Both Louise and Marcel were arrested. Louise's health had been getting worse and worse for some time prior to this latest crisis. She died of a heart attack in prison while awaiting trial. Her death occurred just 15 days after her arrest and Blanche's discovery. She was 76. Her last words were supposedly Oh, my poor Blanche. After her death, all attention switched to her son Marcel, who bore the brunt of the outrage felt by the public. He allegedly told police at the time of his arrest that his sister was, quote, foul, angry, overly excited, and full of rage, end quote. Madame Monnier's final act was to bequeath her family wealth towards Blanche's ongoing care. In fact, she changed her will not long before her death to ensure this clause was honoured. Grit and Kent, the newspaper writers I mentioned earlier, claimed that Marcel and Louise had, quote, in fact locked Blanche in an upstairs room, nailing shut the windows and chaining her to a bed, end quote. However, there's zero evidence of this. Mental illness is complex and was very poorly understood in the 19th century, even by medical professionals. Psychology and psychoanalysis were both still in their infancy and treatment ranged from the cruel and barbaric to deliberate indifference. Mental illness then was seen as a moral failing and something to be ashamed of. 
It was a defect that could taint the carefully curated reputation of a family and should, at all costs, be hidden away and never spoken of. This was the culture that the Moniers were raised in. I'd like to say that we have evolved and that there's no longer a stigma to mental illness and that treatment, medication and support are freely given. But it would be disingenuous of me to suggest this as it simply isn't true. For centuries, families of means either hid their disabled or mentally ill family members within their homes or delegated their care to strangers, transplanting them to an asylum or institution to be hidden away and never spoken of again. The Disappointments Room was a 2016 psychological horror film written by C.J. Caruso and Wentworth Miller. It starred Kate Beckinsale. I don't bring this up to comment or critique the storyline, but to highlight that it detailed a real-life phenomenon that's been documented across North America and likely other countries too. This phenomena has been dubbed Disappointment Rooms. Presumably, if an individual did not meet the acceptable criteria set out by their society, culture and family, then they were hidden from view in an attic, basement or other secluded space on a family's property. The character of Zelda Goldman from Stephen King's novel Pet Cemetery and subsequent film adaptation in 1989 is another example of this on screen. Zelda's character had survived spinal meningitis and was presumably suffering from the consequences of that infection. Her condition meant that she had high care needs and meeting those needs fell upon her family. Like Blanche, Zelda was confined to her room and Rachel, her sister, a child at the time, was tasked with caring for her. While under Rachel's care, Zelda died an agonizing death through accidental choking. Her character is monstrous in both the book and film adaptation because she is a metaphor for the ghosts that were haunting her sister Rachel. Laurie Dumas is the owner of a home in West Warwick, Rhode Island. It's believed that this home provided the inspiration for some of the elements of the disappointments room. She says that after she bought the house, she was giving a tour and someone said to her, you've got a disappointments room. She tells us, quote, Historically, these rooms were used for parents who had a child with a disability and they wanted to keep them a secret from the rest of the world. So they hid them away in rooms up on the third floor, which was just unbelievable, end quote. Laurie's house was previously owned by a prominent local judge and his wife, Judge Job Smith Carpenter. A street close to their former home, Carpenter Court, was named in his honour. Laurie conducted research and discovered that the couple had a daughter, Ruth, who died in 1900. She was five years old. This birth was never announced despite the judge and his wife being a high-profile couple. 
Ruth's death was a footnote in a local newspaper. An article on the Hollywood Versus History website tells us that, quote, Laurie believes that the politically inclined Judge Carpenter used the disappointments room to keep his disabled daughter Ruth secret from the outside world, end quote. British Queen Elizabeth II had two first cousins, sisters Nerissa and Catherine Bowes line. Both girls were reportedly developmentally disabled. Nerissa was born in 1919 and Catherine in 1926. Their father, John Herbert Bowes Lines, was Queen Elizabeth's uncle. He died in 1930. By 1941, both girls were clinically diagnosed as being, quote, imbeciles. They were secretly placed in the Royal Earlswood Asylum for Mental Defectives, a mental hospital in Surrey, England. Members of the British royal family were allegedly told that both Nerissa and Catherine had died. Writer Lindsay Deniger tells us that three of Nerissa and Catherine's cousins from her mother's side of the family also had the same condition. Deninger tells us that in 1987, quote, genetic experts determined that all five of these women potentially had a genetic disorder that caused disabilities in the female members of the bloodline on their mother's side, end quote. All five of the cousins resided at the Royal Earlswood Asylum for much of their lives. Their sad fate was only uncovered after Nerissa's death in 1986. She was 66 years old. In 1987, a journalist from the Sun newspaper posed as a relative to visit Catherine. At the time, she was still living at the asylum. They used the opportunity to photograph Catherine and document conditions within the asylum. Once the story broke, it caused a monumental scandal in the British tabloid press. The subsequent scandal was a major storyline in Season 7, Episode 4 of the TV series The Crown. Listening to the language used to describe Nerissa and Catherine is difficult to hear. It's dismissive and offensive to label anyone as being an imbecile, much less to diagnose someone as one, which I'm sure any modern medical professional would agree is not even a condition that actually exists. The Royal Earlswood Asylum for Mental Defectives is thankfully another relic of a bygone era. Originally called the Asylum for Idiots when it first opened in 1847, which, let's face it, is not much better. It later became the Royal Earlswood Hospital. This hospital closed in 1997 and the site was redeveloped into the Royal Earlswood Park. Language has a lot of power and the labels a society is willing to give its most vulnerable citizens can be quite telling. Hiding away family members who did not meet the strict and exacting criteria of a powerful family was not just an English problem. The Kennedys, often touted as the unofficial American royal family, also had family secrets that they wished to conceal from the public. 
Rosemary Kennedy, the younger sister of former American President John F. Kennedy, experienced seizures and what was labelled violent mood swings as a young woman. These next few sentences reference birth trauma. Please skip ahead if you prefer not to hear. During her birth in 1919, Rosemary's mother Rose was told by a nurse to, quote, keep her legs closed, unquote, in order to keep the child inside her for longer. No doctor was available to attend the birth, as much of the US were in the midst of a Spanish influenza epidemic. The baby's head remained suspended in the birth canal for up to two hours, resulting in a loss of oxygen. We don't really know how this affected Rosemary, but reports suggest that she struggled to meet childhood developmental milestones. She was later sent to a boarding school for people with intellectual disabilities. In 1941, when she was 23 years old, her father Joseph arranged to have a prefrontal lobotomy performed on Rosemary. He authorised this without the knowledge of his wife and presumably any other family member. And certainly without Rosemary's consent. In 1996, James W. Watts, who performed the procedure on Rosemary, spoke to Joseph Kennedy biographer Ronald Kessler. Watts intimated that, in his opinion, Rosemary did not have an intellectual disability, but instead suffered from severe depression. He believed that it was seen as less shameful to the family to have a, quote, mentally retarded family member rather than a mentally ill one. Joseph Kennedy was concerned about the appearance of mental defect within the family. He worried about how it might impact John's political career. The procedure was unsuccessful, and post-procedure, Rosemary had the mental capacity of a two-year-old. She was mostly non-verbal, and when she did speak, was incoherent. She was also unable to control her bladder or bowels. Rosemary was institutionalised and the rest of the Kennedy family didn't know her whereabouts for 20 years. It was only after Joseph's death that they were able to locate her. The Kennedy family reconnected with Rosemary and were involved in ensuring her continued care for the rest of her life. Her sister Eunice Kennedy Shriver founded the Special Olympics in 1968. This was partly inspired by Rosemary and other disabled people she had met. Rosemary died in 2005 at the age of 86. Now back to the Monnier case. Marcel Monnier was charged with complicity to violence. His trial began on the 7th of October 1901. It lasted for five days. During the trial, it emerged that Blanche's presence within the home was not a secret. Everyone who worked within Madame Monnier's household was aware of Blanche's condition, but they were forbidden from speaking of this outside of the walls of the home. Many of these current and former employees testified at the trial. 
They said that Blanche was not confined to her attic room for the duration of her confinement and that she would spend time in other parts of the house on a regular basis. Sometimes she even played piano, a skill she had learned as a child. While Marie, her nurse, was alive, Blanche's physical condition was good. She maintained good hygiene and her room was clean and in good condition. Scottish writer Jackie Frank tells us that, quote, These testimonies should be understood in the context of Blanche being a very sick woman who would soil herself, rip her clothes off and destroy objects and furniture in her violent rages, end quote. She explains that Blanche would not have been an easy patient to care for, which is why when her principal carer died five years earlier, things took a drastic turn for the worse. After Marie's death, Louise did not replace her with another nurse. Instead, she hired a succession of young and inexperienced maids who were, as Frank put it, entirely incapable of managing the needs of a very sick woman. They were also expected to sleep in the attic with Blanche and many left after a short period of time, unable to cope with the additional demands of being a nurse and carer for a physically and mentally ill woman. Evidence presented at trial suggests that Louise hampered any efforts to properly care for her daughter. For example, one maid testified that she requested clean bed linen and nightshirts for Blanche. Louise refused, stating that she would only rip them off her and soil them again. In 1899, Louise hired two young maids, Juliette Dupuis and Eugenie Thibault, to look after Blanche. Blanche was a difficult and uncooperative patient. We can speculate with some level of confidence that the two women struggled in their newly appointed roles. In early 1901, approximately six weeks prior to Blanche's discovery, Louise became extremely ill. This may have been the illness she would eventually die from. This brief but severe bout of illness would prove to be her undoing and provide the impetus for the whistleblower to make their move. With Louise temporarily incapacitated, it fell to Marcel to assume responsibility for his mother's household. This included giving orders to staff and overseeing Blanche's care. Marcel petitioned his mother to place his sister in a hospital to receive the care she so desperately needed. Louise refused stating that it had been her late husband Charles Emile's dying wish for Blanche to remain at home. He had not wanted her to be institutionalised. At the time, Marcel, as Blanche's brother, did not have the legal standing required to force the issue. He was also unable to make decisions concerning his sister's welfare. Perhaps he was waiting for his mother to die before he planned to act. What we do know is that Marcel was derelict in his duty of care to his sister. This brings us back to the anonymous letter that was sent to the Attorney General of Paris. Even now, more than 100 years after the fact, we are no closer to uncovering the writer of this letter. 
speculation was rife in the press and among the public. Over the decades since, many have suggested that it was Marcel himself who had written the letter. Driven mad from the guilt and shame emanated from his complicity in Blanche's confinement, Marcel allowed himself to be led by his conscience and sent the letter without Louise's knowledge. He could no longer stand to watch his sister's condition deteriorate. Others are just as convinced that one of the recently hired maids, Juliet or Eugenie, or someone close to them was responsible for exposing the dark secrets hidden within the walls of the Monnier home. One rumour circulating at the time suggested that one of the women had a relationship with a young soldier. She told him of the deplorable conditions that Blanche was being kept in, and that it was he who had written and dispatched the letter, ultimately freeing her from her lengthy captivity. Marcel abdicated his responsibility to his sister's care. He took a step back and became a spectator to her captivity. During his trial, overseen by Judge Dufresnel, Marcel's defence lawyer argued that there had been no violence levied against the victim. He argued that it could not even be proven that she was abducted or imprisoned. He also proposed that the very fact of closing a door behind someone who has no intention of leaving is not an act constituting a crime. He added that Marcel was not culpable for this alleged crime as he did not even live in the property that his sister was held in. On the 11th of October 1901, just five days after the trial had begun, Monsieur Marcel Monnier was found guilty of the charge against him. He was sentenced to 15 months in prison. At the time of the sentence, there was no law in place in France that compelled an individual to assist a person at risk of harm. Immediately after the sentence was read out in court, Marcel and his lawyer appealed the verdict. They argued that Marcel was not responsible for the crime since he was not the legal owner and guardian of the Monnier home. They conveniently placed the blame for Blanche's ordeal and condition on Louise, who had been deceased for several months at the time of the trial. Shockingly, the appeal was successful. Marcel walked free in November 1901, mere weeks after the end of his trial. In many ways, this trial took place to satiate the appetite of the public, who were baying for noble blood and calling for someone to be held responsible for the travesty of Blanche's years of confinement. Yet, that very noble blood that ran through Marcel Monnier's veins was, in the opinion of many ordinary people, the very thing that saved him from punishment. Much of the information available on this case comes from newspaper clippings published at the time, and the partly fictional 1930 book by author André Gide, The Confined Woman of Poitiers. Gide wrote of Blanche's life in vivid detail, changing some names in the process. But he was as true to the facts and information available at the time as possible. This book is the most comprehensive surviving record of the case to date. In 1947, Gide was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for this book. 
Blanche spent the days and weeks after her discovery being treated by nuns. On the 11th of June the following year, she was transferred to the psychiatric hospital in Blouet, a town south of Paris. By then, she had recovered as much as was possible. Her head had been shaved, she had gained weight, was clean, wearing clothes, and could communicate using short phrases and sentences. She would never recover beyond this and would never be able to reintegrate into French society even if she had wanted to. After the trial, Marcel fled Poitiers and lived out his retirement years in a chateau in the Pyrenees. He died the same year as his sister. We have heard two distinct stories here, both differing narratives and both knotted together at key points. Where they meet and diverge will probably always be a point of contention. As with every story, the truth likely lies somewhere between the two accounts. Two things can be true at the same time. Blanche may well have wanted to marry a man that her parents disapproved of, and this may have been the catalyst for her confinement. Just as likely is the theory that Blanche's mental and physical health were rapidly declining, and her parents were tasked with deciding whether to care for her at home or have her institutionalised. The stigma of mental illness on their familial reputation, combined with the horror stories they had likely heard about conditions in asylums, probably solidified their decision. Charles Emile's death and Louise's own untreated mental illness, alongside Marcel's apathy towards the worsening situation, directly led to the apparent dereliction of care witnessed by the police officers who happened upon Blanche that Thursday in May 1901. As humans, we have a tendency to underestimate the collective trauma of large-scale tragedies. Tragedies such as war crimes, genocide or natural disasters. It's not that we don't care, we do. It's that our brains find it difficult to contextualise the full scale of the tragedy. Major tragedies that involve a high volume of casualties like war, an earthquake or a volcanic eruption are simply too big for most of us to conceptualise. We need human stories in order to connect. The scale of major tragedies often dwarf the stories of the individual. Yet every major catastrophe is comprised of a thousand tiny tragedies. When we hear the experiences of individuals, we can understand the devastation in a more real and human way. The survivors of the Mount Kelly eruption on Java Island that morning in late May 1901 mourned the hundreds lost to boiling mudslides. Their stories are now lost to history. Blanche's story would likely have been the same. A series of tiny tragedies enveloping the life of a single person. Had she not been discovered crouching in that filthy attic, we would never have known her story. Her death would have been a footnote in history, like so many that came before her. Tiny tragedies are still tragedies, even if no one is there to bear witness to them. This podcast was written, 
researched, produced, and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. Please like, rate, and review, as it really helps to grow the podcast. Thank you.